Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 54, The Woes of Joe Johnston, Problems on the Potomac Front. Before we begin today, I want to clarify one point in case any of you out there are researching or reading on your own. It's a relatively minor area of terminology, but it might be an important one for you. When I'm describing ranks in the Civil War, I try to refer to brigadier generals by either the full title or simply as brigadier, although in addressing them I may just call them general so-and-so. I admit to doing all this imperfectly, but there is a reason for this distinction. The next rank up from brigadier is major general, and that may also be referred to as a full general, that is, a man fully at the rank of general officer. The higher grade of lieutenant general was rarely created, and often only for specific purposes, or to identify and honor soldiers of immense renown and reputation. In the main, major generals were the top of the ranks regardless. In this series, I am applying the term major general to both federal and confederate service for clarity. At the time, major generals were often officially referred to as general, indicating that they were in fact a full-class general officer. The CSA never formally created the rank of lieutenant general, and the United States only appointed Ulysses S. Grant to such a role. So for most of the war, the distinction literally didn't exist. As a side note, the United States also never created the rank of field marshal. Many nations have at some point, and it is considered the highest military rank possible. The United States introduced a comparable rank during World War II, however. So, in the instance of George McClellan, his role as general-in-chief did not come with a new rank. He remained a major general. He could, in theory, send orders to another major general in command of an army of theater of command, such as Henry Halleck. General Halleck could then order a corps commander, also a major general, and he in turn would send an order to a division commander, the final major general in this chain. Then some orders might go out to brigades, probably led by brigadier generals, but sometimes colonels. All this was just fine as a matter of army command. However, pride and rank sometimes caused frictions. When two commands merged operationally, the man who held the earlier, older, or as it was referred to, senior commission, had the authority. This, in fact, was very much a point on Joe Johnston's mind in 1861. Johnston dedicated himself to military service and life, to a degree that even Robert E. Lee did not match. Yet his career never brought him the same respect. In the Confederate Army, however, he had finally come to outrank Lee for a few months. In a manner of speaking, the rivalry between them simply never ended, not during the war and not after. That said, ensconced at Centerville, as he was after the Battle of Bull Run, his bigger problems lay in the matters and person of General Pierre-Gustave Touton Beauregard. General Johnson formally outranked General Beauregard, according to the official Confederate Army Register. Probably. And behind that lay a story. But for our purposes, the most important concern was the fact that Johnson could not merely supersede Beauregard regardless of rank. Nominally, it was Beauregard, and not Joe Johnston, in overall command at the Battle of Manassas, or Bull Run. 
Of course, the reality of the situation looked quite a bit different in the details. General Beauregard made himself useful, rallying the soldiers and keeping the main Confederate line intact. But he had fanciful notions and bad plans of taking the offensive before the battle. He contributed greatly to avoiding swift defeat, but little to achieving the final victory. That was primarily Joe Johnston's doing, because he kept his head and intelligently reoriented every force available to meet the challenge where it was, while he still could. So it was that the woes of Joe Johnston began almost immediately after the Battle of Bull Run. And in this case, I do mean that very literally. Even before the fighting ended, the Confederate soldiers completely lost their heads. This mattered potentially a great deal. If you remember our episode on the Battle of Bull Run, or again, Manassas as most Southerners dubbed it, Confederate President Jefferson Davis actually visited the battlefield during the fighting. He arrived, in fact, just as the last reinforcements fatally marched off and struck the Federal flank. This drove them into a rout. While Davis's first impressions of the battle were not favorable, he soon heard the sounds of battle swiftly roll away, McDowell's entire force in flight. On that night, the night of the battle, Davis, Beauregard, and Johnston met in camp and discussed the post-battle strategy. Davis gave explicit permission for an offensive, presumably aimed at driving the Federals from Centerville, where half the defeated army huddled together awaiting attack. Defeating, or better yet destroying or capturing, this force would have radically reshaped the war. But there were a few problems. The main one was that the average soldiers had completely lost their organization and discipline. They strode about wherever they pleased, as undisciplined as their federal counterparts, taking trophies and amusing themselves, more or less. True, also, Confederate killed and wounded equaled federal losses, excepting missing or captured. Many soldiers also no doubt came near to collapse, stricken with sheer exhaustion and dehydration after a long battle under the scorching summer sun. This being the case, an immediate assault seemed very unlikely. A few Confederate units had not taken part in the fighting, but certainly not enough to take on even the remaining half of the Federal Army. That said, Johnston and Beauregard did not necessarily have to directly assault McDowell. Besieging or harassing them would do nearly as well. Unfortunately, even that would not do. Although some Confederates went up close enough to keep watch, in the end, they could not summon the ability to fight until after McDowell managed to exit Centerville safely. Johnston moved in and occupied the town, using it as the base from which he would threaten Washington for nearly a year. There was an additional quirk a bit in this as well, and it lay in exactly what orders Davis gave. But the failure to reorganize and go on the offense did irk Johnston who could see the obvious military opportunity left on the table. That said, in his own defense, Johnston had a few reasons things did not go his way. While the Confederate cavalry would in the main perform extremely well during the war years, they lacked the immediate numbers on the field to scout while also harassing McDowell, while also managing the captives. Then the rain started, which helped cover McDowell's retreat and slowed the Confederate response even more. Long after the fact, Johnson claimed, incorrectly, that Davis did not order a pursuit. 
This is and was false, and Johnson was there at the time Davis authorized one, though once again put a pin in that. That said, there were also practical issues Johnson had to deal with. For one, he was officially only commander of half of the combined unit, but Beauregard still led the other. This would have to be managed and merged. Certainly, this took time. And in addition, here's that little issue of Davis's instructions. He deliberately changed them from an all-out follow-up to battle into a reconnaissance in force, because he considered that, well, maybe those initial reports could have been exaggerated. Ultimately, it would just take time to get the Confederate Army in gear. More to the point, we should note that only rarely in Civil War battles was the victor able to follow up by destroying or capturing the defeated entirely. The winner of a battle generally sat down on the spot and began licking his wounds. The loser ran off, sometimes not very far at all, to recover in a similar manner. The effort of a fight always seemed to completely wear out all involved. So perhaps it was always a false hope to follow up on the immediate victory at Bull Run. It became, however, a particular sore point for Joe Johnston because of Beauregard and his ambition. In the momentary elation of victory, however, all was smiles between these three men. Now, as we said, Johnston did capture Centerville, and they then quickly pushed on to Fairfax Courthouse, the high-water mark of semi-permanent Confederate occupation near Washington, D.C. Only about 15 miles from the city of Washington, this became the center of the front lines, the locus of activity containing McClellan's reborn Army of the Potomac. As an additional point of historical curiosity, that meant that for several months there were, in fact, two armies of the Potomac. General Beauregard's original command in Virginia, and the forces he had stationed at Manassas, were so named. In the immediate aftermath of the battle, Joe Johnston's Army of the Shenandoah merged with it, although as a senior commander, General Johnston did eventually take control of all. But he kept the name Army of the Potomac. It is a little bit weird that McClellan, who of course was actually General Johnston's friend pre-war, uh, also took that specific name. But ultimately, that's just a matter of uh, formalities. Now, both the Army of the Shenandoah and the Army of the Potomac had, of course, been called armies, as they were independently operating in the field. That said, in terms of size, even combined, they were more like a rather large corps. But at this point in the war, units such as wings, corps, and divisions had not yet been implemented. On the Confederate side, Johnston Beauregard, and similarly on the Union side, McDowell, simply commanded the brigades individually. Be that as it may, call it what you will, organize it as you will, the Confederate Army of the Potomac would face serious difficulties maintaining its strength in the face of Union opposition. Despite the serious setback at Bull Run, Johnston never felt it possible to cross the river and capture Washington itself. He had several strong reasons to think so. First, his forces stretched their limited supply lines even to get to Fairfax. Although the Confederacy could interdict Union efforts to control the river, which we shall discuss later, they could not control it themselves, nor supply from it. Therefore, everything had to go over the railroad from Richmond. 
Now they could maintain this position, but a strenuous advance would become very tricky very quickly. This was the beginning of the Confederate logistical problems, though far from the end. Now second, Johnson lacked the kind of equipment to effect a strong crossing and make use of it. Advancing over a river might require boats or other methods of crossing. It is, regardless, almost always a chancy maneuver in the face of an enemy. Crossing rivers means that your forces must always be vulnerable. Some of them might get across, but with limited room to maneuver. Others will be in the middle of the river and largely helpless without gunboat support. Finally, those on the far side can be left unable to assist. This does not, of course, make river crossings impossible. Rather, soldiers throughout history have almost always preferred to attempt it by surprise or speed and avoid any fighting in the process. But third, and perhaps most important, Johnton looked at his army and realized that he simply did not have the numbers to dare such a risky attack. At this time, the northern states were recruiting by the thousands and then tens of thousands, and their ranks filled out a single army on the Potomac, 100,000 strong. Joe Johnson did receive some reinforcements, but the Confederacy was already beginning to see the manpower problems that would plague it. Recruiting was still strong, and enthusiasm ran high. Yet there were only so many soldiers to be had, and so many guns to arm them with. One nuisance, too, was the unfortunate necessity of spreading out men over a wide front, which in Johnston's specific case meant along the Potomac, at least from Leesburg to Aquia Creek, as well as holding the advance lines reasonably close to Washington. He had to do this in order to carefully watch for any movement on the northern side of the river, activity which might alert him to an immediate offensive. Aquia Creek, in particular, was a position of some importance. The main railroad from Washington to Richmond looped well out to the west through Manassas and Gordonsville. However, there was another railroad which went almost directly north from Richmond to Aquia Creek. As an aside, I am not 100% certain, but I believe that the railroad did not continue on because of difficulties in crossing marshy ground. But Aquia Creek was right on the Potomac, and it was closer to the sea. Therefore, there was a small port, and actually still is today. Confederate units, though not always able to maintain it, would roll out cannon and harass any passing vessel bearing a U.S. flag. At a time when William Seward in Washington was trying to reassure European delegates that, no, the United States had everything well in hand, thank you very much, it was a little bit embarrassing that they could not even necessarily get civilian steamers upriver to the city. But that one position could not be held strongly. It was not well fortified, and it was on one far end of the Confederate line. Joe Johnston just didn't have the army to spare. That said, the Confederacy had to spread forces out much farther, in fact, and that was just in Virginia. They had units in the Shenandoah Valley, trying to poke at Harper's Ferry. Others occupied Norfolk, and also the Virginia Peninsula, watching Fort Monroe and General Butler's men. Still others, as we've seen, stationed themselves over at Staunton, and hopefully blocked any further Union advances out of western Virginia. 
Outside of the state, the naval activity off the Atlantic coast, though still only pinpricks around the Confederate periphery, nonetheless forced Richmond to maintain forces all along the major cities. They knew well enough that the loss of a major port could prove fatal to the war effort. The direct material consequences of a loss looked bad enough on paper, but the strategic problems and the effects on public morale would be, potentially, much worse. And that was merely in the same general region as Johnston. At the same time, off in Tennessee, Confederate forces also assembled in order to block potential Union thrusts down the Mississippi or across Kentucky, and at even this moment, the fires of war raged in Missouri. So at the moment, Richmond had few enough men to spare beyond the absolute necessity. Johnson would slowly receive reinforcements, but before too long he recognized himself to be hopelessly outnumbered. When he urged more men and more cannon from Richmond, however, he spoke only the absolute truth. Across the river, his counterpart George McClellan had begun a masterclass in how to lie with statistics. Unfortunately, Joe Johnson's relationship with Jefferson Davis began to slowly break down as early as September of 1861. The trouble began, more or less, with Davis's very informal administration and his habit of applying strict rules for thee but not for me. As we've seen, immediately after Virginia seceded, and before it formally joined the Confederacy, the state began to arm in earnest. Robert E. Lee personally headed this effort. However, he did not seek, or for that matter gain, a formal rank in the Confederate military, not even after Virginia signed on. Instead, he built a personal relationship with Jefferson Davis, one which had not really existed before the war. They knew each other, of course, but were not close. Lee always had a way of ingratiating himself with, well, everyone, and in particular, he found it both easy and beneficial to manage Davis. Just by temperament, Joe Johnson could not. There was a hair of trickiness to this, if not outright deception. Lee might shade the facts in a way so that Davis could accept them. Johnston never would. He'd always call it exactly as he saw it. And for Lee, this advising and messaging and assistance allowed him to take over a couple plum command opportunities despite showing mediocre performance in the early war period. Davis, however, also did not give Lee a permanent rank in the Confederate Army, not yet. Instead, he left Lee's role ambiguous, which is exactly where the problem began. Joe Johnston, known for being a stickler about matters of rank, kept receiving directives from Lee. But Lee had, insofar as Johnston knew, no authority whatsoever. And even as a matter of proper military discipline, the orders and declarations often looked extremely questionable. Some even intruded improperly on Johnston's traditional rights as a commander. For example, it would be at least unusual for headquarters in this area to simply tell a general they were assigning him a staffer. He might request a good candidate, of course, but normally a commander's choice of staff officers was his own decision. Johnson therefore became infuriated when one such officer simply appeared by surprise one day on his doorstep, under orders by Lee. He refused the appointment, pointing out that it was somewhat improper as a matter of military discipline for Lee to provide any orders at all. Jefferson Davis let this stand, but he was not happy. 
and perhaps he ought to have handled the matter. He had the authority to mandate nearly anything in his capacity of commander-in-chief, traditional or not. However, he neither properly laid out the chain of command at this point, nor smoothed the issues and related problems with Johnston. Furthermore, Davis had another man, General Samuel Cooper, as an aide who could properly have communicated any such orders. And much of this seems to be Davis's insistence on having everything his own way, but without ever building the necessary personal relationship groundwork for it. Lest we assume that this was only Johnston being stubborn, well, there was that side of it. But at the same time, he necessarily had to insert himself and his authority, or risk being completely undermined. He potentially had a guess that Lee might want to take his command for himself. He also had to deal with a certain amount of disrespect from below as well as from above. The below, in this case, meant General Pierre-Gustave Touton Beauregard. Now, although he's come up many times, we have not discussed his past in much detail, in part because his really significant role in the conflict has not yet come up. But one of the key issues with Beauregard was his all-consuming desire for public recognition. More than likely, this fueled his ambition to quickly join the Confederacy. Though not always a bad trait in a commander, it drove Beauregard to much foolishness. In particular, Beauregard was happy to claim all the laurels of Bull Run, and adoring fans and otherwise stern newspapermen across the South equally quick to provide them. Johnson could, in fact, argue that he deserved most of the credit, but no one seemed particularly to notice or care. This would later erupt into a nasty bout of mutual recrimination. In one instance, Beauregard carefully worded a letter, meant for public consumption, on the topic of the failure of the army to advance and capture or crush McDowell after Bull Run. Unfortunately for all involved, he carefully worded that letter in such a way as to confuse his terrible plans for an attack before the actual battle with the inability to launch an offensive afterward. Not surprisingly, Joe Johnson and Jefferson Davis took exception to this. But in pushing back against Beauregard, they both wound up arguing just as much with one another. But Johnson could put up with that. A fatal breach occurred when Jefferson Davis posted his official ranking list for the Confederate Army's major generals. Once again, he created a situation best avoided, and managed to make it about as bad as he could. In March of 1861, the Confederate Congress had the ranks for the top army commanders drawn up by law. While there were some complexities to this, the basic gist was that the Confederacy would have a handful of major generals with the order of their rank based on their rank in the pre-war American army. By this wording, Joe Johnson would presumably have been the first and foremost officer. Jefferson Davis disagreed. He ranked the men in order Samuel Cooper, Albert Sidney Johnston, Robert E. Lee, and then Joe Johnston. Beauregard ranked fifth, but for him that was a meteoric rise and he had little reason to complain. Davis submitted this list to the Confederate Senate. He implied this was a fulfillment of the earlier law. The Confederate Senate promptly ratified it, and quite possibly gave no thought to it at all. Joe Johnson, however, thought about it very much, and he very much had cause for fury. Jefferson Davis 
claimed that this list was based on the class rankings the individuals had when they graduated from West Point. Uh, this was just a bizarre form of logic. Uh, he also claimed that Joe Johnson's pre-war rank of Brigadier General didn't count because it was a staff position and not a field position. Uh, this also wouldn't have made any sense because he ranked Samuel Cooper also a staff general higher. Um, there are only two possibilities here. First, Davis was being deliberately deceptive and, in essence, was simply coming up with some wild lie to have his own way. The second is that Jefferson Davis being the man he was, he always believed deep in his soul that his instinctual reactions and desires were the result of pure, unadulterated reason. He therefore could never bend to anyone else because he was always so obviously and self-evidently right. If anyone else failed to see, they were simply faulty, stupid, or ignorant. You may guess that I personally believe the second, and if so, you guess correctly. This was the fundamental core of Davis's character. He was not a cruel man, yet so often vindictive and petty. He was not a stupid man, but often completely blind to facts obvious to everyone around him. He was not incapable of leadership, but frequently incapable of communicating to anyone not already aligned with him. Jefferson Davis was not a mean or exacting slave owner, and yet many men, with far less virtue, could in some way see the humanity in slaves. Men with crueler hearts might well manumit their slaves, or some of them at least. They might question the peculiar institution. They might oppose the Confederacy. They might join the Confederate Army, not out of abstract love for the cause, but to stand by their friends and neighbors. But Davis was simply not capable of this. He was inflexible as a marble statue. What he did was right, and I'm not entirely certain that he understood the difference between what he wanted or believed and what might be abstractly true or just. In the classic fiction novel, I, Claudius, and its sequel, the protagonist, future Emperor Claudius, decides that men have either virtuous or roguish character, and either golden hearts or stony hearts. It may be best, he thinks, to have a virtuous heart of gold, and the worst to have a roguish heart of stone. But in his estimation, to have a virtuous heart of stone made one inhuman, inflexible, cold, and perhaps ultimately barren of all that is genuinely worthwhile. That is my personal judgment on Jefferson Davis. In this instance, he further failed by not smoothing things over with Joe Johnston, either in advance of his list or immediately after. He could have personally talked to Johnston, persuaded him, perhaps offered him something, but at least taking care to develop the relationship. Jefferson Davis did not do this. Perhaps, in his virtuous heart of stone, he could simply not lower his shield of pride long enough. For Joe Johnston, the problem lay precisely in the fact that the list was sufficiently public to matter. Army officers, and particularly Southern officers, had a strong code of honor to maintain. He could not overlook a snub like that. In their code, some kind of response was necessary. Now, before we get to that response, we should take care not to misunderstand his position. Joe Johnston did not in any way dismiss or leave off his duties. 
he remained at his post, doing all he could and providing the best leadership possible. Even if he felt Jefferson Davis failed all honor, he knew in his heart that Joe Johnston should not. So Johnston wrote a letter pointing out that the revised list Davis created looked exactly like a deliberate insult and demotion aimed only at Joe Johnston. This probably sounds a bit familiar. Although stronger in tone, the new issue only replicated the same problem as when Davis was Secretary of War. In both cases, Joe Johnston was probably right on the law. But Jefferson Davis simply dismissed Joe Johnston's interpretation and substituted convoluted logic with a few outright falsehoods mixed in. Now, the letter was rather passionate, and Joe Johnson should probably have just filed it. After thinking it over, he ultimately sent the letter to Jefferson Davis. And notably, only Jefferson Davis. He did not publicly retaliate. Davis responded with a cold and somewhat meandering message that vaguely complained about Johnston's tone, but without really addressing his points. I have just received and read your letter of the 12th instant. Its language is, as you say, unusual. Its arguments and statements utterly one-sided, and its insinuations as unfounded as they are unbecoming. Now, frankly, even if he had the authority, Jefferson Davis should have recognized the letter as a massive signal that here there was a problem, and he, Davis, needed to resolve it now. Even a little bit of personal warmth might have mollified Johnston, who genuinely seems to have wanted Davis to respect him and wasn't really known for keeping grudges. But Davis did not, and it became a serious bone of contention. Moreover, Although the Confederate Congress in the moment seems not to have paid much attention to the rank list, some men noticed that Davis seemed to be going out of his way to spit on Joe Johnston by way of promoting the careers of his personal favorites. Favorites that, at the time and in retrospect, might not always have been the best choice. As an example, one of Davis's favorites was a man named Judah P. Benjamin, who had taken the position of Confederate Secretary of War. Now, criticism of Benjamin is a little complicated. He was Jewish. And unfortunately, anti-Semitism was a real factor. Much of the criticism directed his way was explicitly based on anti-Semitic language. So you can't necessarily take that at face value. That said, there's good reason to think that Benjamin, well, was a terrible Secretary of War. He was an absolute Davis loyalist, which could actually be a bit of a problem. Jefferson Davis would always stand by him in return. But he was rather ineffectual, and although an excellent lawyer and whip-smart, he wasn't necessarily actually very good at dealing with any of the army commanders or providing them with what they needed. He had an unfortunate and obnoxious habit of playing legalistic word games with people rather than doing the job. In just one small, almost comical anecdote, Joe Johnson asked Benjamin to send some contractors out, basically to uh, build some long-term winter quarters for the troops. Benjamin did, in fact, dispatch some woodworkers. Unfortunately, the pair apparently decided that they weren't really needed and turned around and came back, and then said, uh, oh yeah, Johnston told us he didn't need us. Johnston had said no such thing. But Benjamin did not inquire further, 
And then when Johnston was confused and came back around and said, what's going on? Benjamin got on his high horse and basically blamed Johnston for the whole thing. Now, Johnston had done nothing wrong and basically was completely in the dark. Something like this could have just been a minor episode. But similar situations began to crop up, and it seemed like every single commander in the Confederacy had some sort of weird interaction with Benjamin, who simply didn't know enough about the military, and, well, this was a tough time to learn. That said, over on the Union side, we're actually not very far off from Edwin Stanton taking over as Secretary of War. And he is looks very much, in terms of credentials and abilities, much like Judah P. Benjamin. But he takes to the job with gusto, learns it, and makes it his own, and in fact becomes arguably the single best Secretary of War in American history. The trouble seems to have been, in large part, that Benjamin just adopted whatever Davis said without really diving into it, questioning it, and understanding all aspects of the process. When anything went wrong, and he was questioned, he basically fell back on a lawyer's argumentation rather than actually fixing the problem. So it was that as September slid towards October, the Union Army of the Potomac failed to move before winter slowly began to set in, and at least that gave Joe Johnston a little bit of breathing room and time to think on his many, many woes. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and hope you'll join us next time.